Psalm 16. And before we start walking through this psalm and we read it together, I want to start with a series of questions. First, how does God fit into your life? What is He for you? Who is He for you? How do you think of the God of the Bible? I want you to to ask yourself those questions. Who is God for you? What is He for you? How do you think of the God of the Bible? And I ask these questions because I believe that the majority of the people in our culture today, which we call the, the Bible Belt, the Bible Belt region, and the southern parts of America, would say that they believe in God. If you were to ask them, the majority, they would say, yes, God, I know Him. I believe in God, I believe in His Son. They have heard the Gospel preached to them. They know who Jesus is. They were baptized. They go to church. They read their Bibles, they pray, and they teach their children to do the same. But whenever it comes to choosing what it is they delight in, God is now nowhere to be found. He has been pushed aside so that they can enjoy the things that they really want to enjoy. They go on with their lives claiming to know God, but never really enjoying the person, the character of who God is for them, or His Son Christ and who He is for them. People like this may play the Christian part well, but be sure of this, that's all that they do. They play the part well. People who are like this, they don't really know God. And they do not know His Son, Jesus Christ, because to know God is to delight in God. To know His Son, Jesus, is to delight in Jesus. You cannot know God and not delight in Him. So my prayer for this morning as we walk through Psalm 16 together is twofold. First, I pray that you would be convinced that to know God is to delight in God and enjoy Him forever. And secondly, if you do not delight in God, if you do not delight in His Son, my prayer is that He would draw you to Himself and you would enjoy Him forever. So let's pray together, and then I will read Psalm 16. My Father in heaven, I come before you now as we have your word open before us, and I pray that you would be among us now, that again you would open our eyes to see, that you would open our minds, our ears, our hearts, that we would receive your word with joy and with gladness. May it be to us like honey, sweet and tasteful, 
rejoicing our very souls. And Father, if there are people here this morning who do not know You in a way that they don't delight in You, I pray that they would do so. For to know You is to delight in You. I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for these people. And I ask that You would be with me as I speak to them. May it be clear. May it be understandable. And may it all be to Your glory and to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Let's read this psalm together. Psalm 16, beginning in verse 1. David writes, Preserve me, O God, for in You I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from You. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Preserve me, O God, is how David starts his plea, his petition, petition, excuse me, or his prayer. This is David's prayer before his God. He is praying to God and asking for preservation. And as we are going to see in a moment, you can't really see now why he's crying out for preservation, but in a moment we're going to see that one day David knows that he is going to die. He knows that he is going to face death. And so that is why he cries out, Preserve me, O God. Now, after making his initial plea to God, David is going to spend the next six and a half verses calling to mind who God is for him. So for the next six and a half verses, all the way down to verse 7, David... Now remember, this is a prayer. So I want you to picture in your mind as we're going through these, David praying. So he's made his initial plea. So think, how is it... What do you do when you pray? You start out, Help! Help me, O God. And then you would start calling to mind who God is for you. His promises. And that's what David is doing. So think of that as we go through these next six and a half verses. And whenever we make it to verse 8, we will see how because of the promises of God and because of David calling them to his mind, he reaches confidence in the Lord. So again, preserve me, O God, in the second part of verse 1. Verse 1, For in you 
I take refuge. David brings his plea, his prayer to God, because God is David's refuge. He says, for in you I take refuge. So in other words, therefore God, I take refuge. Refuge in you, and so I cry to you, preserve me. You are my refuge, so I cry to you, preserve me. God is David's refuge. Verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Here, David uses the title Lord twice. He says, I say to the Lord. You are my Lord. Now, if you look down and notice, the first Lord is in all caps. Now, what that means is that David is calling upon the personal name of God, which is Yahweh. By doing this, David is showing that he is not calling on just any so-called God. He is calling upon the personal God, the living God, the one true God, the God who makes Himself known to His people, the one who makes Himself known on Mount Sinai to Moses, the one who says that He is a God of steadfast love. He shows steadfast love to thousands, but yet He does not let the guilty go unpunished. This is the God that David calls upon. He calls upon the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. The second Lord has only the L capitalized in it. And what that means is just master. So what David is saying, I say to Yahweh, the living God, you are my master. My allegiance is to you. I serve you. I am your servant. You are My Lord, You are the one whom I serve. The second part of verse 2. I have no good apart from You. God is David's highest good. For David, God is the good from which all other goods flow from. He is saying, you take away the Lord and I no longer have anything good. They all come from Him. The Lord is the one from whom all blessings flow. God is my greatest delight, David is saying. He is my highest treasure. Verse 3, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now in saying that all of his delight is in the saints, David is not saying that he delights in the people of God more than God Himself. That wouldn't make sense because he has already said, I have no good apart from God. What he is doing is he is just expressing in another way who God is for him. So he says, out of all the people in the world, it is the saints 
It is the people of God in whom is all my delight. It is their company, their friendship, and their fellowship that He enjoys the most because they too delight in God. In handling this verse, Pastor John Piper says this, and I'm paraphrasing this quote, these aren't his exact words. He says, Where David finds his primary joy is where the saints find their primary joy, which is in God. And so that is the reason why David delights in the people of God. David's primary joy is God. The saints' primary joy is God. And so his greatest delight is to be with them, to share fellowship with them. They delight in God together. So what would it say, Christians, brothers and sisters, if we were to ask ourselves this question and our answer would be, I don't find my greatest delight among the people of God. I find my delight in the people whom don't delight in God. Yeah, I go to church. I you know, show up Sunday morning. I hang out with them Wednesday nights. But you know what my real delight is, is to go hang out with these other friends and do worldly things, you could say. What does it say about us if our primary joy in people is not in those who share our primary joy? What does that say about our Christian fellowship that the Lord Himself has given to us to share? Now that does not mean that we go about saying, I don't want to be a part of people who may not share our faith. That's not what David is saying. He's just saying that his greatest delight is with them. He can delight in other people, but his foremost, his ultimate delight in people are in those who share His faith in the one true God. Verse 4, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Again, here David is showing that his greatest delight is in God and Him alone. He is saying, those who run after another God, their sorrows will only multiply. He is separating Himself from their gods. He is saying, I will not take part in their offerings. I will not take part in their worship. And I will not even speak their names on my lips. He is separating Himself in worship to God alone. David is showing his devotion to his God. He says that those who go after another God will only experience more and more sorrow because they are going after gods who cannot satisfy. They are chasing gods who can give no lasting delight. Oh yes, 
They yield some pleasure. That's why they're so attractive. That's why people worship them. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a physical god, an idol. We're in the 21st century, right? We don't bow down to idols, is what we say. Or do we? Do you worship your money, your possessions, yourself, your husband, your wife, your girlfriend, your boyfriend? Anything can be an idol if it comes before God Almighty. If you delight in something else more than God, it has become an idol. And David is saying these things are only temporary. And in the end, in chasing these things, there is only sorrow. David says, I have found a true and everlasting joy in the Lord. I have found it in Him alone. Verse 5, David says, The Lord, using His personal name again, Yahweh, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The picture that is drawn here is one of food and drink. David is saying, you could set before me all of the finest food, all of the finest wine. My portion, however, is God. He is my sustenance. He is the one whom I depend upon. He is the one who gives me life. He is the cup from whom I choose to drink. The Lord is His chosen portion. His cup. And then what is this, you hold my lot? What does that mean? What is is lot? It's David's circumstances. His situations. He says that God holds in the palm of His hand every circumstance that David could ever find himself in. He controls it all. Every second of David's life is within the sovereignty of God Almighty. And so is yours. And I wonder, upon hearing that, that God holds every second of your life in His hand. Does that bring you joy? Or does that bring about fear? Verse 6. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What David has in mind here, I believe, is boundary lines. Lines that mark off different territories and portions of land. Lines like that, boundary lines. David is rejoicing that the Lord has put him within the boundaries of pleasant places. A beautiful inheritance that is bound up in the Lord Himself. Because the Lord Himself is the beautiful inheritance that David has been given. So he rejoices that God has hemmed him in ever which way. He is bound up in this beautiful inheritance, which is God. Verse 7, 
I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. The Lord is David's trusted counselor. It is His instruction that David seeks and delights in. For who else has perfect knowledge? Who else knows the thoughts of a man before they are ever in his mind or on his tongue? There is none. The Lord alone has perfect knowledge and perfect counsel. And isn't it just amazing that this awesome, all-powerful, all-knowing, and ever-present God lowers Himself and offers Himself to weak and needy people like you and like me. Like David. God, who dwells in heaven, holy, holy, holy is this God, and He lowers Himself to the needs of His people. And David knows this. And so, that is why when he comes to verse 8, after calling all of these things, all of these promises to mind, he's been calling to mind who God is for him. In verse 8, he now has confidence in his God. And he has confidence in his situation. Verse 8, he says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Remember, we said that this is David's prayer to God. And so what he has been doing throughout this whole prayer is he has been setting himself, or setting, excuse me, setting the Lord always before him. That is what he has been doing by naming off all of these promises. He has started out weak and needy, helpless, He cries out, Preserve me, O God. And then he uses the promises of God and he now gains confidence because of God's Word. That's why these are here, brothers and sisters. They are here for you to know them, to pray them, to call them to your mind, and to remember that your God is with you, that He is an ever-present help. And that if He is at your right hand, you cannot be shaken. And this example is not only given in this psalm, but throughout the psalms and throughout the rest of the Bible. Over and over again, when you read through the psalms in particular, and specifically the psalms, because they are songs, they are petitions, they are laments, they are songs to God, you read over and over again, Words written by weak and needy people crying out to the Lord for help. And all the while, while they're crying out for help, they are steadily gaining confidence and courage because of the Lord's promises to His people. That is how confidence is reached in the Christian life. That is how David reached it in his own life and within this psalm. He started out with his plea, preserve me. And then he began to call to mind the promises of God. The conclusion is that he now knows that he cannot be shaken, and he rejoices in his hope 
that he knows that he has in his Lord. Now to verses 9 to 10. David continues in his rejoicing. He says, Therefore, therefore, because of all of these things, because they are true, because of God's promises and who He is for me, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, which is just the place of the dead. Or let your Holy One see corruption. Remember at the beginning of this prayer we said that David was crying out to God because one day he knows that he's going to die. He knows that he's going to face death one day. And so now in these verses we can see that. We can see that he has his plea before God because of his coming death. The question now is how are we to make sense of these two verses? Because David did indeed die. He died, and I can with confidence tell you that his grave is still with us today. And if any grave robbers haven't stolen his bones, they're still there. But I don't know that. So you can't quote me on that fact. I'm not sure. You can ask Google that question. Maybe it knows. So he died. He, his body went into the grave. So did he hope in God in vain? Did the promises of God fail because of his death? No, they did not. And now I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. As you're turning there, I will uh, summarize the, the context of which this passage that we're about to read is bound up in. So in Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching a sermon. And he is preaching a sermon to the people that are gathered together in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. The apostles and the disciples of Jesus have just been filled with the Holy Spirit. They have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And now they go out into the streets and they are proclaiming the Word of God to them. And so in the midst of Peter's sermon, he says this to these people, beginning in verse 22. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and the passage that he is about to quote is the passage that we just got through looking at in Psalm 16. He says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, 
or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Then Peter continues on to say, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So David's hope was not in the fact that he would live forever physically, that he would not face death. He knew that. And we're about to look at the the passage that God revealed that to him, which is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which was what Peter was referring to when God allowed him to know what the future held for David and his line. So David was not thinking that he was not going to face death. However, his hope was in the fact that somehow he would have resurrection in the coming king. So now I want you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I'm going to begin in verse 8. Now in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, David had made it his goal to build a house for the Lord. And God appeared to him by the prophet Nathan and he said, No, David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you one. One that will last for all eternity. It will never end. God told him that I'm going to take and raise up from your offspring a king who will sit on my throne forevermore. So quickly, let's read through this beginning in verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, he's speaking to Nathan the prophet, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, speaking now of David, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. 
and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So I believe that in writing this psalm, Psalm 16, this is what David had in mind. And David didn't have all of this figured out. He didn't know that the coming king would be Jesus. He didn't know that he would be 100% God and 100% man. But what he did know is what the Lord told him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That one day I will raise up a son from your offspring. He will be king. He will sit on your throne and he will dwell forever. And so in knowing that, I think David thought to himself or said to himself, I don't know how, but in His coming, I will have resurrection. And in the people of God will have resurrection. The final verse, verse 11. David concludes with the sweet promises of future glory. He says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 verse 44. In the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus, Jesus told many parables about the kingdom of God. And in this particular parable about the kingdom of God, in verse 44, Jesus says this. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In his joy. Friends, the treasure that the man found in the field was the Lord Jesus Christ Himself shining forth in His glory in the kingdom of God. And so in finding this treasure, He covers it up. And then in His joy, He goes, He sells all that He has so that He can have Christ. And that He can have His kingdom. So that He can look upon His face. So again, I will say as we work to a close now, you cannot know God. You cannot know His Son, Jesus, and not delight in Him in some measure. Now let me be clear, and you need to hear this, so pay attention to this very carefully. I do not mean that the Christian will be full of joy always in his life. There are times when the Christian 
can feel about his own, his or her own joy that it is almost gone and it just seems like it is not there. You can wake up one morning and just say, God, I don't desire you today. Or you could come to Sunday morning worship and say, I just don't feel like singing to you today. But this is the difference. This is the difference. The follower of Jesus will fight for joy. The non-Christian just doesn't care. The Christian will fight for joy. They will see that their joy is just wasting away if for whatever reason they will cry out, Oh God, help me! Bring me back the joy that I've had before. Whereas the non-Christian just goes about playing the part of the Christian, maybe, going to church, but they never have a concern for real and lasting joy in their Savior in whom they find all their delight. So I ask you, is Jesus Christ the one whom you cry out to? Is He the one you cry out to and say, preserve me, O Lord Christ? Is He your refuge? Is He your master? Is He your trusted counselor? Your portion in this life? and in the life to come? Is He your treasure whom you would give everything for? Like the man who found Him in the field and in his joy sold all that he had so that he could have Him. If not, why not? If not, why not? What else could you be trusting in? What else could you be finding your delight in? If you are finding your greatest treasure, your greatest delight in something else, then I will again give you the warning that David gave to us earlier. Your sorrows will only multiply. It may seem pleasurable now, but one day you will have sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow, and there will be no joy whatsoever. Because God will give you what you want. He will give you the worthless idols that you have spent your life trying to sap something that is not there. Joy is found in Jesus, brothers and sisters. And it is found in Him alone. So if you do not know Him this morning, if He is not your everlasting joy and treasure... Turn to Him. Cling to Him. He will not turn you away. Jesus loves to take broken and needy people and make them His own. His life was full of that. He did not go to the great. He did not go to the powerful. The main people that Jesus spent His ministry on were the broken, the weak, the sick, the ill, the ones who were poor in spirit and contrite in heart, the ones who knew that they were sinners. So turn to Him, and in Him find your fullness of joy, find your greatest treasure, find pleasures forevermore. O oh God, our treasure, our greatest delight, 
We come before You and we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your promises that You have revealed to us. That they are there so that we may pray them. That we may cling to them. May we, like David, call them to mind. May they give us strength in our time of need. Father, may You be with Your people. May You give them strength. And Father, I also pray for those here that may not know Christ. May You draw them to Yourself. May they see that these idols, these worthless things that they have been following after are in fact worthless. They are dry wells that can hold no water. May they turn to You. May they find the light in You. It's in Christ we pray and ask these things. Amen.